0: Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander, and we want to welcome our guest today, Tony Dunbar, author most recently of Flagboy. Welcome back, Tony. Thank you. I'm
1: very happy to be here.
0: Well, we love the Tubby Dubinay mystery books, but let's talk a little about you. This is Writers Forum, and you're a writer. I know you started off in Atlanta.
1: Right, I grew up in Atlanta, and uh, uh, my family migrated from there to uh, to Massachusetts and then also to New York City eventually. And I finished high school in New York and then came back down south uh, mostly for civil rights related uh, projects that I was working on then. Very interested in doing that kind of stuff. It was the uh, I worked in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky with some community groups there uh, on minors issues. And uh, so coming to New Orleans was a big shift from that, but uh, something I'd always wanted to do.
0: Well, looking, I always, you know, I'm kind of OC, so I always have to find out everything I can about our guests. And you were a serious uh, community organizer. You worked with Amnesty, Amnesty International, and you've written several books before you started writing the wonderful series about Tubby. Well,
1: that's right. I've written some books about uh, southern history southern uh, uh, church uh, movements um, which I would call the uh, radical gospel movement when the early the Protestant church in the south there were a number of uh, ministers who were allied with the uh, southern tenant farmers Union and and uh, other uh, interracial movements then so that was a big fascination for me um, but what did get me to New Orleans actually when I was a a teenager, uh, we took a family vacation from Atlanta and came over here and stayed on Bourbon Street. And it was just, uh, I just remember it being incredibly hot, but also just incredibly eye opening. Uh, i a <laughs> bet for a teenage
0: boy. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'd get up in the morning and you know, walk down to Café du Monde to get uh, beignets to bring back to the, to the little cubbyhole that my parents had rented. And there'd be, you know, drunks lying on the street and people sweeping out the bars and to my uh, eyes at that time, it was about the most fascinating place I could ever imagine being, uh, you know, having coming from being a teenager in Atlanta, which is a pretty straight place. This seemed like a, a great spot to move to, and it, so that was always in my mind, and later on the opportunity came, to, when I was living in North Carolina, to work for Amnesty International and set up their office in the South, and I could have been anywhere I wanted to, but I told him that New Orleans, in my mind, was the center of, it was the international city of the South, and that's where we should be. So I, I did that for, came to, got me to New Orleans to live here, and I've lived here.
0: We also went to Tulane
1: Law School, didn't you? Yeah, I worked for Amnesty for three years, and organized little chapters around the South, and through Texas, and then I, uh, I went to Tulane, uh, law school, and, uh, Now you're an
0: expert on the Battle of New Orleans. (laughs) I mean, you really went all the way to being a New Orleanian.
1: Yeah, and I've practiced law ever since, uh, since the uh, the 80s.
0: Well, unlike Tubby, (laughs) you're in banking law. I know you're a partner, aren't you, at Chef McCall? That's right.
1: That's right. Mostly what I do is represent uh, uh, banks and banks. and, yeah, that's quite a departure from uh, I noticed the same
0: monogram, Tubby Dubenay, Tony Dunbar. I mean, is that just a coincidence? You know,
1: that's sort of lost to the sands of time. I remember how I came up with the name of Tubby Dubenay, but I don't remember consciously thinking that it had anything to do with my name. Um, but it's been a good name. Uh, I, I, people are Tubby fans. They kind of like the
0: Oh, I'll say. What, is this your tenth book that we're talking about?
1: Yeah, it's the tenth in the series. Uh, I will say that I have written, as I said, nonfiction books and southern history books in earlier years primarily, but uh, most of those uh, collect dust on library shelves.
0: I read them. I well, read good. them all. How <laughs> oh, wonderful. Good.
1: I got them from the library. I got
0: them from the library last yeah. time I interviewed you. <laughs>
1: but the uh, Tubby Duvenay mysteries uh, have attracted far greater readership than anything I ever tried to do in nonfiction.
0: Well, they're just so enjoyable. And and you really, you capture New Orleans. I mean, Tubby could only live in New Orleans, I think.
1: And that's the motivation for writing it is just to have an opportunity to sort of kick back and uh, look around the city and write about the city and the people that... And I, I remain very much enchanted by New Orleans. Uh,
0: well, let's talk a little about Tubby. Uh, he's a lawyer. Yes. And he does have some principles that he lives by, and you mention them in almost every book, I think.
1: Never screw a client and never lie to the judge and and always try to get paid.
0: And always try to get paid. He sticks that in at the end. Mm -hmm. And I feel, having read all the books, um, that I kind of know some of these people. Um, He has a, a secretary.
1: Cherry Lynn, that's right.
0: Resilio is that i think i saw her last name in some book
1: uh she is from actually the uh seattle area uh originally uh you, you probably encountered raisin partlow in almost all the books
0: now he's he's tubby's friend from what college they from were college.
1: roommates they were roommates in college that's right they've stuck together now raisins. Tubby's
0: from Bunky though
1: he's, he is from Bunky. yeah Ra- raisins from somewhere else we're not quite sure where
0: what made you pick Bunky?
1: Well, Bunkie's easy to pick because, I mean, it's been picked by a lot of people. It's just a funny-sounding town. But I happen to know some people in Bunkie, and I've spent some time there and had a little sense of it as a North Louisiana a metropolis. And uh, so it it kind of fits the backstory of Tubby Dubonnet and how he ended up coming to New Orleans and where he got some of his background from
0: starting from the first book, you, st- you you put in some characters that, for me, I don't know about other readers, it's really fun to try to guess little hints of a real person that <clears throat> might have in some way, um, oh, I don't want to be libelous or anything, but in some way <clears throat> affected your description. Uh, I remember Sheriff Muley at the time reminded me of Charles Fody.
1: He reminded me of... Uh... Charles Fody as well. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, <laughs> let's see who else. In the jail
1: situation that uh, at that time, which, of course, we have a new jail now, but the some of the scenes in Tubby's earlier novels was set in the old Orleans Parish prison, and uh, which was in many ways run by uh, thugs, uh, both in uniform and out of uniform. And so that, that provides part of the plot for some of the earlier books.
0: Well, and then <clears throat> you have an allusion to somebody named you describe as uh, running a company called Rockstar Waste Disposal. <laughs>
1: okay. That's a pretty easy one. <laughs> <laughs> for
0: for the listeners, you know, we're on the internet, so of uh-huh. course not everybody is from New Orleans, but <clears throat> we do have a uh, very colorful local personality who's lately become a little involved in politics. Actually, right. considered running for mayor. And he is a rock star with a waste disposal business. Um, who are some of the others? Some of them, I, I don't know. Um, I, I just think they're funny names. I love um, the minister. Uh, is it Buddy Holly? <laughs> yeah, Buddy
1: Holly. No relationship to the uh, rock idol, but uh, it's a memorable name. What a name. great
0: name. Well, some <laughs> of the
1: characters in here, I'll be honest with you, I, I just pick a name that you know. It takes months to write one of these that I can remember when I pick it up again. So some of the names are just selected because they stick in my mind.
0: But then, but then you're a lawyer, so you must do some kind of clearance to make sure...
1: Well, I do. I do a little bit of that. Um, as far as I could tell, when I first looked at it years ago, there was no other attorney named Dubonet in Louisiana, and certainly nobody, nobody named Tubby Dubonnet.
0: What and is his real first name? Do we ever know?
1: No. No. Are we
0: ever going to know? I don't think so. <laughs> do you know?
1: <laughs> I haven't dwelt upon that. You're not that. telling if, yeah. you,
0: if you do. Well, uh, also he has an investigator that we've seen in most of the books. We call him Flowers. That's not mm-hmm. his real name. Sanre Fueres. Fueres. Um, and he's always helping out. Anyway, as I said, I, I was... He's a good-looking
1: with, guy, too. He's big and strong and blonde. And, uh, you know, he... Uh, uh, He's kind of like Paul Drake for anybody who's old enough to have ever picked up on Perry Mason stuff.
0: Or watched. It's been on, you know, reruns. It's still on reruns right. <laughs> somewhere. Is it somewhere. I think in outer space, you know, the the signal is still drifting out there from Perry Mason. Well, um, if I had to pick a favorite so far, of course, the new one is always your favorite, I'm sure. Um, I loved Tubby Meets Katrina. I right. think you were the first person that I remember who wrote a novel right after the storm.
1: Yeah, that was, I had written um, the original, I guess, five or six Tubby books had all been New York published books and, uh, and hardcover. And then I'd kind of laid down my pen, but then along came the storm, which is, uh, you know, incredibly dramatic and chaotic event for anybody who lived in New Orleans. Actually, the mandatory evacuation of the entire city for two months, Uh, and when I got back, uh, I didn't. My my law practice had pretty well expired uh, because it it just wasn't anything happening. I had plenty of time on my hands, uh, and I thought. Where did
0: you go when you evacuated? I
1: went to um, actually. I went. I went to Pascagoula and worked uh, in the in the parking lot of a chemical plant uh, with a friend of mine who was a caterer. Uh, feeding about nine hundred hard hats every day, and my job was uh, running the. I had I was in charge of ice, and I was in charge of juice. So I did the early morning coffee juice, and I had mm. the big control of the ice truck, which was like huge. Uh, down. I'll say so, I
0: remember those days. So
1: that was that's kind of an off-resume job, but very. Uh, it was a cool thing to find to do because it it actually paid, uh, at a time when everything else had dried up. But I did come back and started working on my house and, uh, and writing, um, Tubby Meets Katrina. And I had a lot to say. I mean, I'd seen a lot. I'd felt a lot. I was, had lived through it. And Tubby Dubinay has always been the way I said anything, uh, that I expected people might want to read. And, uh, yeah, it came out. My ambition was to get it out quickly and that meant not going to a traditional publisher, but to, uh a good house over in Alabama uh, called New South Books. And they did. They brought it out in a hardcover form, I want to say, in May of 2006. So that was right after the uh, the first book that came out, the first novel, certainly, about the storm. But it got it off my chest. And uh, it's a pretty scary book.
0: It, It was. I always thought to make a movie would have been, seemed like that would have been a natural one. Well,
1: I could not agree with you more. I've been thinking that all these books should be movies and TV shows. And, and, uh, and then you know, wouldn't have to be a lawyer all anymore. All those rights are available if anybody uh, is ever Anybody interested. listening? Yeah.
0: Um, but, but there is a, a danger to one of Tubby's daughters. I reread it recently, uh-huh. and I had forgotten that. Now, Tubby has three daughters. He does. You don't have three daughters. No. I know you have a son.
1: Right. I have a son. That's, that's correct. He's, he just made 21,
0: so we... Oh my goodness, I I remember he was born. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you don't know if he'll end up being a lawyer? or
1: It's it's an entirely open book at this point.
0: None of Tubby's kids seems interested in law.
1: No, none of them, uh, and Tubby doesn't have the kind of, nor do I, have the kind of law firm. I I don't really have any, I I don't have a practice that my son could go to law school and step into, nor does Tubby. He didn't have a kind of practice where his... And they didn't have the least bit of interest in that. Uh, uh, They're kind of renegade kids in different ways. Um, But they're starting to get a little older now. uh, One of them has a child. uh, So the family has developed over the years. All right. Let's start. has a girl. He's no longer married to their mother, but he has, you know, he's had a series of girlfriends throughout these novels.
0: Yeah, the girlfriends, I always wonder, I don't know you personally, if they are no, anyway.
1: No. <laughs> no, Tuffy has a much more exciting life than I do. No. Yeah.
0: Too bad, because yeah, yeah. he, he he sure has a good time with those ladies. All right, the latest is, of course, Flag Boy. For people that might not be from New Orleans and have the benefit that we do of knowing all about Flag Boys, what is a Flag Boy?
1: Well, we have Mardi Gras Indian tribes or gangs or groups in New Orleans that are uh, rather fantastic and unique organizations, typically based in a neighborhood of people, uh, African Americans, uh, I guess, exclusively or maybe some Indian mixed in, who have ad- who have adopted Indian garb and Indian headdresses and Indian paints and uh, Indian structure to their to their gangs and. Uh, and the origins of this very unusual tradition are pretty much murky but uh, you read a lot of different theories about it but it's, it's an old tradition in new orleans extremely colorful and mardi gras indians have different tri- different groups uh, a number of whom uh, have music that is pretty liked here and they march around the city at odd and improbable times when nobody seems to be quite uh, sure why they picked those neighborhoods or those times But uh, not not infrequently, you will run across a, uh, suddenly there's a blue police light ahead of you, and it's trailing a bunch of Mardi Gras Indians who have tambourines and headdresses and beautifully garbed people, uh, often with a brass band, just marching through the neighborhoods.
0: Well, in in recent years, it's kind of been uh, civilized more from what it once was, Whereas you can see them now at Jazz Fest, you can see them on uh, certain parades. They perform. Uh, The origins are thought to
1: be neighborhood gangs that uh, protected turf. And they they typically, when they paraded, they were looking for the other gangs. And they had a spy boy who went out to look and see where they were. And he would telegraph messages back to the flag boy, who, through various uh, waving of his flag, would alert the chief who was coming behind him of where the other tribe was, and so it's a, it's a traditional member of a Mardi Gras Indian gang, and uh, I uh, just sort of latched onto that. Actually, I latched onto the title because I heard one of my neighbors where I live in Uptown uh, cracking jokes with some other guys on his front porch, and I just what I thought I heard him say was the flag boy always gets the flower. And everybody started laughing at that and they repeated it a couple of times. And I've never been able to find any significance to that remark. In fact, I even asked him and he didn't recall even saying it. But that stuck in my mind. The flag boy always gets the flower. And
0: well, we're not going to give away too much, but, right, right. but so that, that line that line do does appear yeah. in this book. The flag boy does get the flower. But um it's it's hard to talk about a mystery even a comic mystery because you know you don't want to give away too much but basically the connection with flagboy is <clears throat> there's a character a client of Tubby's who uh, a, a chief wants him to become a flagboy can we say that much without sure. giving away too much so that's the flagboy connection there's several stories in going on in the plot There's, um, on the cover of your book, you have a picture of, I guess it's Prince Bazaar. Right. (laughs) Or
1: Sultan Bazaar, yeah.
0: Sultan Bazaar, or he's a prince, but there's also a saxophone playing, New Orleanian. And at the beginning of this book, um, Prince Bazaar with a group of people comes to New Orleans and is renting a a house. And so that's how it's tied in.
1: Well, I don't, you know, that the um, I don't know if anybody notices these things, but uh, like the last book I did, which is called "Fat Man Blues," featured a guy who was uh, accused of being an axe murderer, and that whole and he had a certain musical proclivities that uh, he, he didn't like people who didn't like his music, and that was kind of uh, inspired by an old New Orleans legend, perhaps. Uh, well, there actually was an axe murderer in New Orleans in the 1910s and 20s who. Killed about 15 people. And he was never captured. But he was supposed to have liked jazz music and would save people who liked jazz music. Well, that was kind of, that kicked off the last book. This one was another ancient New Orleans myth. I think a myth about a, uh, a, t- a mysterious sultan and his harem who came to New Orleans and rented a house in the French Quarter in the 1860s, maybe. And all were mysteriously uh, found
0: dead. Well... Maybe all. <laughs> Maybe all. Yeah.
1: So that was a, uh, but that that probably never happened. But it's such a kind of a juicy story. I didn't I,
0: know that connection at all. Well, these are old uh, mysteries. I knew of the, the Axeman, but I I didn't know that story. Well, um, you Tubby eats very well. I guess that's how he got his girth.
1: He does eat well, probably not as well in this book as in previous. Yeah, books. Yeah,
0: I only saw Clancy's, Clancy's,
1: and probably the Trolley Stop uh, Cafe. Or yeah, whatever. that's
0: not too fancy. Yeah,
1: not at all. But it has big, big breakfast. Uh, you know, my last book, I, uh, I was trying to stay up and feature new places, and I had a nice, nice long meal uh, in Perleu, and the Perleu restaurant closed before the book <laughs> even came book. out, so that was kind of depressing. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, uh, Clancy's is here to stay, so I thought that would be a good place for him to have. He hadn't been there before in these books.
0: Well, and it's an in-place. You live uptown in real life, and and Tubby lives uptown. Yes, he does. I mean, we know a little about his house from the um, Katrina book. Well, this one ties together the one just before this. What was that... um,
1: Uh, Fat Man Blues, Blues. before that Night Watchman. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and again, without giving away too much, well, it's not in this book, it's one of the earlier books, Tubby actually has been maybe violent at some point in his life a couple of times.
1: Yeah, um, he has, but he's he's lived in violent places, uh, and of course all these books have a number of murders in them, uh... to be solved or resolved and this one is no exception Though I, you know you try to maintain a certain levity and uh... and tubby is is not all seriousness there's there's some i hope humor in these books but there are a lot of bodies strewn about by the time you get to the end so that gives you room for a number of uh... of subplots and one of them that's kind of been going through the last three books is this group of uh... originally anti-castro uh, Cuban emigres to New Orleans who may have had something to do with the CIA and may have had something to do with the assassination of JFK. And Tubby kind of gets ensnared in some of that stuff. And even three books later, he's still a little bit ensnared with the grandchildren of the original founders of this group because, you know, time has passed and you know, our relations with Cuba have changed. So that's kind of been a little subplot that uh, stuck around.
0: Um, I I found it quite realistic from what I know of the history of New Orleans and Oswald and
1: isn't this people. a fascinating <laughs> city? I mean, you know, no end of stories between the Sultan and Oswald. You
0: know, yeah, but you you have to have a gift to make fiction out of it. Uh, at the, I have to say, at one point, um, Tubby calls everyone in and he has all these suspects and it, I had just seen the remake of. Um, the Orient Express movie. And I thought, oh, Tubby is just like Poirot. He's calling this group in and 14, I think, suspects. And, you know, he says, I'm going to explain exactly what happened. And,
1: and that was an experiment. But, I, you know, obviously, if you've ever grown up reading mysteries, which I did, you see that sort of, uh, you see that in Agatha Christie a lot and Rex Stout, all the uh, all the Nero Wolf books always ended up with everybody coming to his office and getting... Uh, I thought it was cool. Yeah, it was fun to do. It was fun to do. And he came up he as a result of this uh, group meeting which actually took place in the in the piney woods of Mississippi uh, where there had been another couple of people killed. He uh, he does come up there is a, a maybe they maybe they got the right murder.
0: But then Tubby again maybe accusation. not. There's a little open ending there which People like me think, "Oh, did he just do that to upset us when we thought we knew everything <laughs> that we needed yeah, to know?"
1: Yeah, sure did.
0: But it could be. So maybe we'll find out. Are, are you going to write more Tubby books? Is are we? Well,
1: this book resolved a number of the.
0: Uh, yeah, it tied up a lot of strains. loose ends.
1: Yeah, usually. Well, right now I've got a different project, which is uh, uh, kind of off the off the line. I've been. Since my late teens, I've sort of tossed letters and pamphlets and whatever I thought was interesting in a box. And when that box got full, I've started another box. And over the years, I've accumulated a lot of these boxes. And so my object, uh, my mission right now is to get them out of the attic and go through them and see if there's anything that I forgot about my life that's worth remembering and just to kind of put them in some sort of order. though. I wouldn't be surprised if I found this to be very boring very quickly. And then when Would that this happens, be like a
0: memoir, you mean? I don't
1: know why anybody... I could... Possibly. Possibly. I don't know what I would have to say. But if I do get bored, then the next project usually is coming up with another Tubby Dubonet plot. Yeah. So that may be, in the, may be in the future.
0: And you, you still find time. You keep working. You're, it's not like you quit retired or something just to become a writer.
1: No, I haven't retired to become a writer, but it, it is an appealing prospect, uh, just uh, spending time uh, enjoying the streets and so forth. I can't
0: imagine anything more different from the firm that you work at, which I know a little about. You know, I specialize mm-hmm. in courts and law as a journalist and Tubby's life. <laughs> and I thought... You
1: no, know, it's, it's quite different. Right. And,
0: and then you think so many lawyers, you know, Grisham and all these lawyers write books so there must be something about being a lawyer.
1: Grisha McCarell occasionally practices law now, I believe, uh, which would be a scary thing to do if you're, you know, if you're a millionaire, internationally famous mystery writer. To uh,
0: you mean you're not a millionaire? Internationally no, I'm not. Famous. I, that, well, was my, be. that was
1: my object in the whole thing, but it hasn't hasn't come true yet.
0: Well, maybe it will. I mean, ten books. I just love them. Um, We'll, of course, be probably reading these books on um, WRBH. Maybe you'll read them for us. It would be wonderful to have your own voice. Well, that
1: I just heard that idea today, and it, it sounds very appealing to me.
0: Well, um, I like this critic that was describing several of your books. He said, take one cup of Raymond Chandler, one cup of Tennessee Williams." add a quart of humor, and you will get something resembling Dunbar's crazy mixture of crime and offbeat comedy. Mm. Thank you. You've been listening to Writer's Forum, and we want to thank our guest today, Tony Dunbar.
1: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
0: I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.